chapter, verses 5 through 7, Second Peter, first chapter, 5 through 7. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. I want to ask you to remember my family in your prayers right now because we've got the stomach bug going through it. And so if you see me take off in a moment's notice, you'll understand why. It has not hit me yet, so hopefully I'll be okay. But uh, anybody missing clue number three, by the way? I saw clue number seven in that pew down there. Uh, I'm not sure if you're on a scavenger hunt, but I just helped you out. Rough week on my family. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, you heard my voice. I was recovering from strep throat, turned around and gave it to Micah and Leah on Monday, so I stayed home with them for most of the week. And then Friday night around midnight, Micah's, uh, the stomach bug hit Micah, and now this morning it has hit Sarah. And you know, Scripture does say that suffering and joy go together. Romans chapter 5 tells us to rejoice in our suffering. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, count it all, James chapter 1 says, count it all joy when you suffer, that sort of thing. And, and many of you know uh, how, how health has been a challenge for my family since the start of the year. And, and I just want to, to make this one request of you. Whoever is praying for the joy in my family, please stop. <laughs> we're, we're good. Please, please stop. This morning... We're going to conclude our study that I've been calling Faith Plus, this study of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and these, these virtues we are to add to our faith. We're going to conclude that this morning. But I want to start with the story I heard about a, a young woman who uh, asked her boyfriend, do you love me? And the boyfriend responded, of course, of course I love you. And she asked, well, how much do you love me? And her boyfriend gave some exaggerated claim like, I love you to the moon and back, or, or something like that. Well, she knew that was just some contrived answer, so she wanted to uh, press him a little further. So she asked a more pointed question. She, she said, do you love me enough to die for me? And her, the boy responded, I'm afraid not, my dear, because mine is an undying love. Now, obviously, he doesn't understand the phrase, but I want us to consider the importance of the word love today, because if you paid attention to our scripture reading, the last virtue on the list of virtues that Peter says we must add to our faith is love. Now, we, we talked about love a little bit last week. You may recall, because we studied this term, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is a translation of a Greek word known as Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a Greek word that 
is actually a compound of two Greek words. It takes one of the Greek words for love, philia, and combines it with the Greek word for brother, adelphos, and you get Philadelphia, which means brotherly love or love of brothers. And so we spent some time talking about love last week, particularly in the context of this brotherly love. And if Peter could have ended his list there, I guess, but he didn't. He didn't stop telling us to add virtues to our faith when he got to brotherly love. He went a step beyond that and concluded with a different term for love. He concluded with agape. And this is important because agape was, was rarely used in secular Greek. The, as we mentioned last week, the Greek language had multiple languages or multiple terms for love. But agape, which is known to many of us as a Greek term for love, was rarely used in secular Greek language. It's kind of like Jesus and his followers adopted agape and applied it to a Christian terminology, giving it a distinctively Christian understanding. And so when you journey through the New Testament, you'll come across phileo or philia, the, one of the Greek terms for love, but more often than not, when you read the word love in Scripture, you're looking at agape or agapao, the verb form of it. And this morning, I want us to consider what makes agape love different than the other Greek terms for love. What makes agape so special that it's the term we're going to encounter most frequently in the New Testament? Well, agape is different in terms of what the New Testament says because of its recipients. In the New Testament, Philadelphia was used to denote the love between fellow brothers, fellow believers, I should say. And, and it implied the family-like devotion that should characterize the Christian community, as one author said. Therefore, if Peter had ended this list of virtues with Philadelphia, with brotherly love, then a Christian could easily conclude that all they had to do to complete the list of virtues is to love other Christians, and then they would have added everything they needed to add to their faith. But the fact that Peter concluded his list with agape means that the love a Christian adds to his or her faith must be more universal than brotherly love entails. It's because agape has a much broader application than Philadelphia. The list of those who are to be the recipients of agape includes not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it also includes our Heavenly Father. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, a scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responded by giving us what is now known as the greatest command, which according to verse 30 of that chapter says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And when Jesus instructed us to love God, he used the verb form of agape, the same word that Peter says we are to add to our faith. But we're not just instructed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love our Heavenly Father with agape. 
we're also instructed to love our neighbors. Because the greatest command doesn't just end with the instruction to love the Lord. As most of you already know, the greatest command is a two-parter. And so after instructing us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus goes on to say in Mark chapter 12 and verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? When Jesus instructed us to love our neighbors, he once again used the verb form of agape, the same word that Peter says we are to add to our faith. And so when we talk about this agape love, it's not limited to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not limited to our Father in heaven. It's applicable to every human being. Because if you go over to the parable of the Good Samaritan and you look at the question posed there, who is my neighbor? And you read that parable, the conclusion of the matter is this, your neighbor is anybody who shares this planet with you. And so agape love isn't limited to just people who share your faith. Agape love applies to everyone who shares the same planet as you. And that even includes the people you can't stand. Because when we look at the use of agape in Scripture, it's also applied to our enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus instructs us to love the people that we have a tendency to dislike or even hate. And he links our identity as children of the Father to whether or not we fulfill this command. And when Jesus instructed us to love our enemies, he once again used the verb form of agape, the same word that Peter instructs us to add to our faith. So when we start talking about this kind of love, this final virtue that we're to add to our faith, we're talking about a love that's to be applied to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's to be applied to our Father in heaven, that's to be applied to our neighbors on this planet, and that's to be applied to even the neighbors we don't like. This is a universal kind of love. As one commentator said, agape is not a completely different love than Philadelphia, but it embraces the love of brethren as one sphere of Christian love in its fullest scope. Agape is universal. Agape is the same love, the same word for love, that's used in John chapter 3 and verse 16 when we're told that God so loved the world. Agape applies to every person on this planet, not just the ones who share our faith. So agape is different because of its recipients, but agape is also different because of its definition. Now, we, we spoke last week, and, and I've already mentioned it this week, that when we come to the term Philadelphia in that list of virtues, we kind of get its definition from the two Greek words that make it up. And we understand that Philadelphia means brotherly love, this love between brethren in the church, this love between fellow believers. It's a self-defining term, if you will. But technically speaking, the Bible does not define agape for us. 
However, it does describe agape for us. And it does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want you to notice with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter, just verses 4 through 6 at this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul takes the time to describe this agape love, to, to, to utilize human terminology to help us understand what agape looks like and how agape behaves and what agape thinks. Reflecting on this passage, one author said, God does not define love in terms of abstractions, attitudes, feelings, or ideology. He only describes love in action. In God's dictionary, love is a deed. And I think that's why when Jesus expounded on what it means to love our neighbor through the telling of the Good Samaritan, he emphasized what the Samaritan did. If you journey over to Luke chapter 10 and you read that parable, remembering that it begins because someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, after identifying that the greatest man is to love God and to love people. And Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he talks about that priest and that Levite who did nothing. And then he gets to the part about the Samaritan. And the Samaritan, we're told, went to the injured man. The Samaritan bound up the, the injured man's wounds. The Samaritan set the injured man on his own animal. And the Samaritan brought him to an inn. And the Samaritan took care of the injured man. Everything about the Samaritan is describing what he did, describing his actions. And at the conclusion of the parable, pay attention to the question Jesus asked. He said, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the correct answer was the one who showed him mercy. Do you get this? When you read the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and when you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we have this example of loving our neighbor, it all centers around activity. It all centers around the actions and behaviors and conduct of love. Love is demonstrable. Love is action-oriented. Love is visible. We tend to place love in the category of the abstract, as a feeling, as an emotion. And there is a component of that. But love is so much more. Agape love is so much more. And because agape love is demonstrated, I believe that's why Paul associates it with what we do in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 and verse 14 when he says, let all that you do be done in love. Or think about 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, where John gives us the instruction to not love in word or talk, but in deed. The point is that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in particular, and the Bible in general, 
speaks about what love does, how it acts, not how it feels, as one commentator said. That's what makes agape different. It's not just about a shared emotion or a feeling. Look up the term agape in dictionaries, particularly Greek-English lexicons, and more often than not, you're going to see some definition that centers around benevolent activity. Because agape isn't limited to just how you feel. Agape manifests itself in what you do. And that makes agape different. One final thought about the difference of agape. Agape is different because of its development as well. See, we are accustomed to love developing naturally, aren't we? As I mentioned last week with the term phileo, the, the, the root of the term Philadelphia, phileo is, is a bond between people who have a, a shared life experience. And so phileo is that, that, uh, that bond that teammates develop because they've competed together, or, or that bond that fellow soldiers develop because they've been in combat together, or that bond that family members develop because they've shared life experiences together. That kind of love is not planned. That kind of love is not fabricated. That kind of love is not even intentionally pursued. It just naturally happens because of what you're going through with the other person. It naturally develops. That's phileo. We can even cross over into the category of another Greek term, eros, which is the romantic term for love. With my voice cracking there, that was beautiful, wasn't it? Eros is the Greek term for romantic love. And, and, and when we talk about romantic love, don't we? You fell in love. It just naturally happened. It just developed over time. You couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't prevent it. You fell in love. Right, Bob? <laughs> you fell in love. That's not how agape is described in Scripture. Agape is spoken of differently. Agape is completely unnatural because it runs contrary to our human instincts. That's because agape is impartial. Agape is unconditional. Agape is sacrificial. I like the way the author of the Truth for Today commentary on 2 Peter describes this kind of love. He said it is putting oneself in the place of another and acting in that person's best interest, even when it is to one's own disadvantage. It is supremely the word that directs one's concerns beyond himself, away from personal cares, towards the needs of others. Agape is that completely unselfish Love that isn't natural. It is not natural, not even normal. In this world, for me to love you so much that I'll lay down my life for you. That is completely unnatural for me to sacrifice my agenda, my will, my interest in this dog-eat-dog world, it is completely unnatural for me to give up what I want for what you want. 
But that's agape. That's the love that we are repeatedly told to have in the Bible. And because agape is unnatural, it must be learned. That's why John is, or that's what John is referring to when he says we love because he first loved us in 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. We don't know what agape is until we saw it in the Lord. And this idea of having to learn it is what Paul told the church in Thessalonica when he said you have been taught by God to love one another in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. We had to learn it from somewhere and we learned it from God because agape love starts with him. God is, guess what? God is agape. God is love. For us, that's completely natural. So we have to learn it from him. And because agape is unnatural, it also must be chosen. That's why Paul identifies love as something we must put on in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14. And something that we must pursue in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1. And something that must be produced as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. The language of putting on, of pursuing, of producing, or bearing the fruit of love, all of that language speaks to an intentional choice. It's unnatural. So it has to be learned and it has to be chosen. So agape is different because it is deliberate. It is intentional. It is consciously developed. It's no wonder that this kind of love is identified by Paul as a more excellent way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 30. Because if you're willing to do the work of learning and choosing agape, you're choosing a better way. Now it's one thing for me to stand up here and tell you that agape is different from the other types of love that are out there. It's, it's one thing for us to to think, hey, uh, to, to wrap our minds around, to ingest the belief that agape is different and better. But how does it manifest itself for you? Now, I certainly couldn't fill an, I certainly could fill this entire sermon just focused on that one question about how agape affects you. I could do a whole series on that. I could keep us here for days. But I've been really working on that lately, if you haven't noticed. So let me boil it down to four things that come from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and expound upon these. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 may be familiar to you. It says, Love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's just think about those four statements as we bring this to a close. What does agape entail? Love bears all things. Bearing implies support. Bearing implies an expectation of help. Don't get the wrong idea when we say love bears all things. This does not mean that love tolerates sin. As one author said, love will not ignore sin. It will warn, rebuke, and chasten as needed. But love will do 
everything it can to help someone overcome their life of sin. So when Scripture says that love always protects, to use the New International Version, I think that means that love's first inclination is to come to the aid of another. And that seems to be the idea behind that instruction to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. See, it's easy, maybe even natural, to ignore other people's problems. It's easy, maybe even natural, to look out for number one. It's easy, dare I say even natural, to be selfish. But agape, as we've pointed out, is not natural. So agape is willing to accept the challenge of valuing others above oneself and considering the interests of others rather than one's own interests, to use the language of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And so if you are going to be someone who adds agape to your faith, it may mean you're going to have to bear some You're going to have to support and help other people who are struggling. Let's not forget that the one who first loved us emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death so that you and I could be saved. No one's bared all things like him. And if he was willing to bear that for us, shouldn't we be willing to bear much smaller burdens for other people? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Belief implies trust. Belief implies an expectation of truthfulness. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. The fact that love believes all things does not mean that love is naive. We are instructed to judge with right judgment and to inspect a tree's fruit. But here's what love does mean. It means that we give second chances. It means that we refuse to judge by appearances. And when appropriate, we give the benefit of the doubt. So when Scripture says that love always believes, I think that means that as one commentator said, love's first inclination is, is to believe a brother, to assume that he speaks the truth. See, it's easy, maybe even natural, to distrust. It's easy, maybe even natural, to question someone's motives. It's easy, dare I say even natural, to be cynical at times. But agape is not natural. So agape is willing to accept the challenge of giving others the benefit of the doubt. Let's not forget that the one who first loved us heard Peter deny him three times, but gave him the opportunity to confirm his love for him three times as well in John chapter 21. We talked about this last week. Twice Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And used the word agape. And twice Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter didn't use the word agape. He used the word phileo. And when Peter failed to use the same word for love that Jesus used, 
Jesus changed his question. And so the third time Jesus posed the question, he asked, do you love me? And he used phileo. And this time Peter's answer matched Jesus' question. And the point is that Jesus took Peter at his word even after Peter's words had proved worthless before. And I want you to think, if Jesus was willing to do that for someone who at his lowest moment, at Jesus' lowest moment, turned his back on him, if Jesus was willing to do that for him and for you and I, Shouldn't we do the same for others, knowing that the one who takes us at our word, despite our mistakes, will be the one who judges justly? See, if you're going to have agape love, it may mean that you have to believe all things. From there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 says, love hopes all things. Hope implies optimism. Hope implies an expectation of good. Now, don't get me wrong. The fact that love hopes all things does not mean that love is gullible. We're instructed to test everything, to walk in wisdom. Paul even told the church in Philippi that his prayer for them was that you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So when Scripture says that love always hopes, I think that means, as one commentator said, love's first inclination is to look for and find the best in others. It's easy, maybe even natural, for us to judge others. It's easy, maybe even natural, for us to identify the flaws in others. It's easy even natural for us to criticize others. It can be difficult. And it's definitely unnatural to see the best in certain people. But agape is not natural. So if you're going to add agape to your faith, it may mean that you're going to have to hope all things. Let's not forget that the one who first loved us saw the best in us. Romans chapter 5 says that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still enemies, God showed his love for us and that Christ died for us. See, God in his love saw the best in us even when we were at our worst. Shouldn't we do the same for others? And finally, wrapping up this whole idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 is the phrase, love endures all things. Endurance implies patience. Endurance implies an expectation of not giving up. Now the fact that love endures all things does not mean that love has no standards or limitations. Scripture clearly teaches that there's a time for shaking off the dust from your feet, a time from keeping away from people, a a time to not associate with certain people. 
So when Scripture says that love always perseveres, I think that means that love does not give up. It's easy, maybe even natural, for us to lose patience with people. It's easy, maybe even natural, for us to just give up on certain people. It's easy, even natural, for us to quit on relationships that aren't beneficial to us. But love, agape, isn't natural. And it can be difficult and it's definitely unnatural to endure some people. But agape love endures all things. Let's not forget that the one who first loved us hung on the cross. And he looked out to his mockers and he looked out to his executioners. And and moments before he died, he willingly said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the one who first loved us is described in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 as patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if our Father and our Savior are unwilling to give up on us, shouldn't we be unwilling to give up on others? This morning we complete our study of those things we are to add to our faith. The climax of that list, the ultimate thing we're to add to our faith is love. Have you added that to yours? Have you added agape love to your faith? You see, agape love is the very reason we have the opportunity to have our sins washed away. Agape love is the very reason that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins. Agape love is the very reason you have hope of eternal salvation. It may be that you're here today and your sins are still clinging to you and you need to have them washed away by the blood of Jesus. If you will confess your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, you can receive salvation right now. It may be that you have taken those steps and you've become a disciple, a follower, a believer, a Christian, but you haven't added agape. You're not fulfilling the expectations of love identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maybe you need to change today. We offer the invitation as we do every time we gather. So if anyone needs to write something with God, if anyone needs to repent of something so that they can spend their eternity with Him in heaven, they'll have the opportunity. So we invite you to come, whatever your need may be, while together we stand and sing. Thanks, Lord Jesus, but lost is the heart of God.